Welcome to the PH Journals podcast, where we explore hunting, wildlife management, and conservation. As hunters and conservationists, we know that hunting can be a powerful tool for wildlife conservation, generating revenue and promoting healthy ecosystems. Join us as we explore the latest research, interviewing experts and practitioners, and sharing stories from the field. Whether you're a hunter or conservationist, or simply interested in learning more about this somewhat controversial topic. Hi, my name is Dylan Love. I'm a professional hunter out of the southern tip of the dark continent. Join us as I believe hunting is our best conservation tool we have to offer. So, how's things? Congratulations. Uh, I read the article. It came out really, really nice, and it's wonderful to get it down this side of the world. Yes, it was really exciting. I was just, I was such a surprise. Kevin Robertson emailed me to, to congratulate me, and I didn't even know it was there. You know, he had bought a book at SCI, but I um, hoped he liked it, but I never thought anything more of it, you know, and then that surprised me. So that was pretty cool. Yeah, no, that's awesome. And Sue, what's, how was SCI? I mean, we haven't spoken since then. Was it, was it good for you? It was good. I really liked it. Um, it's a little. It was a little smaller, and I really like Nashville better than Vegas. You know, Vegas is just, you know, I mean, Nashville's just not as big. It's easier to get around. There's lots of little restaurants. You don't have to walk a mile through a casino to get somewhere. You know, you walk yeah. a mile and you have a bunch of choices. And I don't know. I really liked it. I really thought it was good. And it's so close to so many people on the East Coast that I think they had a really good show. You know, a really good showing. So, okay. yeah, I liked it. And That's I liked good. the layout. It was one huge big room, not a bunch of separate rooms. So that made it kind of nice, you know. Yeah, yeah. So a smaller, intimate, more kind of vibe. Yeah. Firstly, I do want to apologize about our last podcast, but it's left me with a little bit of room that I get to ask you some better questions, I guess. Um, but yeah, sorry. I, I don't know. Like I said, I don't know what happened. It's just technology has been beating me these days. So it's been, anyway, we figured it out and at least we're here now. So, but thanks, Suze. Thanks so much for coming back on. Um, it's always, it's a huge privilege for me to have you on the podcast. And um, yeah, I just, maybe we can start off with a little bit of an introduction who you are, what happened. I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of people that know who you are. The book's gained a lot of traction, especially down this side, like you've seen. So, yeah, just a bit of background of where you are and what you've been doing. Okay. Well, um, so we're live now, right? Mm. Um, Okay, so I am Sue Tidwell, and I grew up in rural Pennsylvania, and I grew up in a hunting family, but I never actually hunted myself. And um, I was really skeptical about my, even though I go hunting with my husband, I was really skeptical about him hunting some of the wildlife in Africa because I was so personally attached to those animals. But, of course, I didn't want to miss out on a chance to go to Tanzania. So I put on my big girl pants and um, went off to Tanzania. And through that process, I just changed my whole way of thinking and became such good friends with the people. And before leaving, I made a promise that I would try to help the world understand why hunting is so important and that promise kind of evolved into cries of the savannah and what was at that point what was that aha moment if we can call it that that made you realize that you know what this needs to be put into a good book 
Oh, I, I don't know that I had one aha moment about the book. Um, and even as far as like understanding hunting, it wasn't even one big aha moment. It was all these factors coming together, you know, the habitat saving, how it's important to put a value on carnivores. It was all these things. But the book itself, because I came, you know, luckily I'd taken great notes when I was there because I had a journal. And I had Lillian, who was our game scout, who luckily is young and has a good brain. She could remember everything. So once I made that, before leaving, I was so emotional about leaving, I promised. And I knew that me, who grew up in a hunting family, if I was kind of skeptical of hunting in Africa, then I knew there was this whole other, I knew hunting was under attack. And so I felt compelled to help share what I learned because I had, thought I had a unique perspective. And I really didn't know how I was going to do that when I left Tanzania. But, you know, I tried talking to people. I tried doing this and that. And then finally I just ended up writing a book. It just kind of evolved into a book. People had been telling me for years that I should write one because I write these adventure field Christmas letters every year. But um, I always thought, who wants to hear my adventures? But after Africa, I felt like I really had something to say that people needed to hear. So I finally put the words into print. Lillian played a huge role in the book. I mean, she 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 had her own little character as we developed it, and and it was just such an interesting side. I mean, from a professional hunting point of view, we we always have these game scouts with us, but we don't actually dive in as into personal details as what you actually did with Lillian and how knowledgeable she actually is. Um, you saw firsthand on the impact of hunting that had on regardless of the outfitter ph and all that sort of stuff but people like lillian what was some of the big moments that you could pull from that that you saw had a beneficial impact on her other than probably financial or did she get any of the meat or anything like that yeah well the meat of course was all used um we were four hours from um from the nearest village so we couldn't just take it to villagers or a school like some people do but it was all dry cut in strips and dried you know, like we had clotheslines just full of meat hanging so that was saved for fate for further use but um as far as lillian goes one of my first aha moments was when we found an elephant skull and um she started explaining to me about poaching and there was parts of poaching i had no clue about you know we always hear about rhino poaching and elephant poaching i didn't really know about bush bush meat poaching honey poaching wood poaching um i didn't know about any of that stuff and so she taught me all about that and how even those may not seem as relevant but if they're destroying habitat they're just as just as disastrous as any other kind of poaching or if they're destroying the game animals. Um, the other thing that Lillian really taught me, because one of my biggest um, oh, things, I was really not thrilled about my husband hunting a leopard, you know, or a zebra for that matter. Um, so when Lillian explained to me why it is so important for carnivores to have a price tag on them um, and why local people just, they do not want to live with, with you know, um, lions and leopards. And that it's just easier for them to poison. She explained to me that most carnivore deaths are actually to poison, not to a hunter's bullet. So um, that kind of was another big eye-opening thing. And I, I just came to understand why, 
you have to give people a really good reason to want to live with these animals. And it has to be worthwhile for them monetarily and um, in other ways as well. I mean, as far as, you know, better human conditions, better living conditions, schools, medicines, all those kind of things. And the money provides that. So, Um, Sue, just... Just a quick one. When you say that they had to value and the and the carnivores were being poisoned and stuff, was that because they were attacking the cattle, or is it was yes. threatening their livelihoods, basically? Yes, threatening their livelihoods. So you know, well, you can imagine. I mean, like I try to tell Americans, what if what if your kids were on the way to school had to worry about going up against lions? Mm-hmm. So when you put it in a context that people can relate to. I mean, I would be petrified if I knew my kid had to walk two miles to go to school or to get water. In Africa, since they'd have to walk two miles maybe to get water, and you're going, you know, there's lines there. And, of course, cattle is a huge thing in Africa. That's their livelihood. So um, it's a cattle society in in large parts of Africa. So if you kill on a cattle, you're killing a part of their livelihood. Now they might not be able to eat rest of the year or they might not be able to send their kids to school um so it's just really critical life would just be easier without these big carnivores yeah yeah so um Lillian was... here we destroyed our wolves here you know so we, yeah. we don't live with wolves in our backyard yeah in well, most cases you know, it's it's interesting you say that because we actually we, we've got a huge problem now down in the eastern cape pretty much similar to what you've just explained is that we haven't put a I mean, leopard, you, it's pretty much almost impossible to hunt leopard down in South Africa. So down there towards the eastern coastlines of, our, of, of South Africa, we've got a quite a, the leopard population has grown dramatically, which is, which is great for conservation, but bad for the farmers, you know. So although we can't hunt them, uh, I'm sure there's a couple of leopard that are getting shoved into autog holes, being poisoned and stuff. So it's one of those unfortunate... Um, natural things that we have to come to a realization together but i wanted to ask you um lillian was she's 22 right or at the time she was 23 at the time so now she'd be well she'd be 28 i guess about so so the education they have is just first-hand experiences i mean obviously they'll learn about animals and stuff through literature but i mean poaching and stuff i mean that's just uh feet on the ground type thing well, she did go, she grew up in Moshi, so she didn't grow up in a village. So she's actually from a city of Tanzania, so this was all new to her, but she always wanted to do wildlife conservation. And so she went to the school for wildlife, um, well, one of the colleges there on wildlife. Um, she went there, and then she wants to be a university teacher at some point, but um, of course she couldn't finish her college degree and ended up getting um hired on with a as a Tanzanian game scout so I think they do go through certain kinds of trainings but yeah but a lot of her knowledge of animals is from boots on the ground experience because she didn't grow up in a village yeah okay so it was interesting and and I love the way you described a lot of the sounds and and (laughs) the things that you did in the book you really captured it perfectly um but like you mentioned I, I mean I often a laugh when you go down to more the let's call them blue states in america people always think are oh, you from africa you run around in loincloths and all that sort of stuff <laughs> what was what, what was your first um anticipation or impression of of africa what were you expecting gosh um 
I didn't have that perception. I, although I did watch a lot of Tarzan in my day. <laughs> That's what started my uh, my preoccupation with Africa. I love all of those yeah. Tarzan movies. But um, I don't know. I was just really... Um, I was just really scared. I don't think I... I wasn't worried about the people or I didn't have a, a conception about that so much, but I was just really afraid of snakes more than anything. As you can, <laughs> if you read my book, you can see I'm like obsessed with the whole snake thing. Yeah. So, um, and I was always asking people if they knew anybody who died of a snake, you know, any of the English speaking. And, you know, I wasn't very happy when I got the answer that yes, you know, Joel's brother was killed by a black mamba and now he's the oldest of 35 brothers and sisters. So that, that, that came to me in one sentence and, <laughs> <laughs> but um, I guess more than even though I was really afraid um, when I went there because I really because we were out in the bush you know and, and lions roaring hippos right outside um, hyenas everywhere um, but I felt so safe at Masimba camp even though I was smart enough not to go outside of my tent at night we were made it was made very clear you do not leave your tent at night um, but they made me feel so secure that um I was kind of really able to when I was, you know, I still always had to be aware, but I wasn't able to like, the fear didn't overwhelm me, if that makes any sense. You know what I mean? I was able to just enjoy the adventure and feel like they had my back. So, yeah. So. And I mean, like you described, I mean, you, you were quite grateful that there was a nice flushing toilet and all that sort of stuff around. <laughs> but um, being being so close to nature and, and all not nature, but African species. I mean, the hippo is just down the way. Often you heard times lions in the distance. What was probably the most memorable experience you had on safari? And specifically yeah. the one in the book. Oh, there's, there's so many. There's, you know, a lot of little, a lot of little funny things. Like, um, well, one of my most memorable, I guess, is when we were chasing the Cape Buffalo. You know, and I didn't even know what we were chasing. Uh, everything, all of a sudden, the whole crew flew into action and exploded and we're running through the bush. And I still at this time have no idea what we're running after. And then all of a sudden we get up there and I see them. There's hundreds of them, you know, running across the savannah with all the noise and the pounding and bricks in position. And, oh, it was just, that was just like a, and it was scary because I know how dangerous they are. And then just seeing that many in that pounded hoods and wondering if Rick's going to get one. And I just, they kept going, go by. And I kept saying, I kept thinking in my brain, what's wrong with that one? What's wrong? Because, you know, we spent yeah, yeah. money to go there. And we were just, even though, you know, and I was, you, I wasn't as personally attached to the buffalo, I hate to admit, because they're like our cattle, you know. Mm. So I wasn't as hesitant about that part of things. But, um, and I wanted Rick to fulfill his dream. But it was just so weird, I, you know, it was like the last one of the herd before Raphael, you know, gave him the go-ahead. And anyway, it was, so that was kind of memorable. And then another morning, this is just kind of funny, you know, you're sleeping in Africa, you're scared to death anyway. And then your husband whispers in your ear, honey, put your shoes on, we might have to run. So that's not how you want to, that's not how you want to wake up in Africa. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so anyway... It was, and me being not a morning person, I, like an idiot, listened to what he said, but um, put my shoes on, got ready to run. But um, anyway, it was because there was a big hippo and a baby, right? Like literally 
right outside his screen window. So he didn't know what was going to happen. So, and you guys just had the little canvas tents. I mean, yeah, the little canvas tent, and there's a screen window, and the hippo was right there, and her baby. And it was time for breakfast, so Rick, of course, didn't want to be late for safari. So he's, I'm going to turn the light on, and I don't know what's going to happen. (laughs) And so we turned the light on, and luckily the hippo and the baby ran towards the water instead of, you know, steamrolling us. But we weren't late for breakfast, and we weren't late for safari. So (laughs) I guess that's the most important thing in Rick's eye. Yeah. Um, Sue, I want to dive in. Well, obviously, not mentioning too much of the book, but what was your what was your reasoning behind it? What was the motivation? I mean, you said you're you're a non-hunter, but you come from a hunting family. Um, I'm sure part of your idea was to try and attract um, a conversation that can be had to people that are against hunting, for instance. That was my entire goal. You know, like I said, this was my first book, so I really, to be honest, had no idea what I was doing. Um, I just started writing, and I knew that I wanted people like me to understand Africa, its complexities, and why hunting is so important to the rural people. So I was gearing the book more towards non-hunters. That's why it goes into, like, a lot of detail about stuff. Um, I want them to understand how it all works and what it's like for the people to live there. And and I knew for them, I knew for a non-hunter, because, you know, the backdrop of this book is a hunt. So you were going on hunts throughout the book. But um, I knew I had to make it an exciting adventure, too, and share with them things that non-hunters would want to know. You know, I talked about the animals. I mean, I talked about a lot of stuff. The culture, the people, the animals. I just wanted them to get to know the people of Africa, the ones that I got to know, so that they could put a face on the names. It's not just like these people in Africa. Like now, if they think of Africa, they might think of Lillian or Raphael or Magogo. And it makes it so much more personable, and maybe they'll care about Africa. My ultimate goal is for people to fall in love with Africa and fight for it. And I don't mean go out and fist fight. I mean... If you hear somebody trash and hunting or if you hear somebody spreading misinformation, you know, just gently explain to them some of the stuff that they learn. So that was what was hard for me. I geared it more towards non-hunters, but fortunately, hunters really like it too, even though I didn't really gear it towards them. But I think, um, but I'm thrilled that they're loving it as much. So that's, you know. You see, I think I think from a hunting perspective, what the book does is such a great way because I think with hunters, we've had we've had to defend ourselves for so long, so the the, the bad habits and the bad arguments we've developed as bad habits going on, and those arguments are kind of getting old and stale. So what's so nice about your book is it adds this whole different perspective on why hunting is such a great conservation tool. Um, I, I've been vouching this for, for years. I, I, I mean, it's, it's my livelihood. But like you said, we're so quick to put names on Cecil the Lion or Jeremy the Giraffe or anything like that. But we tend to forget about Lillian and Raphael and all those guys that actually make a living out of what we do. And then you mentioned interesting topics like land encroachment with the, the whole rice fields and stuff. I mean, that blew me away. That was something I was never aware of. So... I think I think from from a hunting perspective, the book gives us such a a great insight into different arguments that we've actually had such a big impact throughout our generation that we actually haven't realized. 
because we've always used, like I said, the same old stale conversation. Oh no, well this this meat just gets donated <laughs> to the village, and you know this this happens. The money goes to conservation and stuff. But actually, you you've broken it down so well that it makes such a great impact. And I really, I mean, if for any hunter out there, it should be a book that we should be reading. So I wanted you, you've been back to Africa a couple more times since then, have have you not? Yes, I have. Yeah, that was supposed to be our once-in-a-lifetime adventure, so we kind of slurred, but you can't go to Africa just once, as you know, <laughs> so we've been back twice since. So that that, that's, that that was my next question, is is that once Africa's in your blood, it keeps you coming back. So every time, it must be a different experience for you, but is there something that you're searching for as far as a non-hunter to keep motivating what you've put out there? Is there something that you see every day or from a different perspective? Um, well, I, to keep me motivated, I just keep seeing the attacks on Africa and hunting and trying to take the rights of the African people away. And it just, it just infuriates me. Um, and I get all emotional about it. And so it keeps me going because quite honestly, this with being a self-published, self-funded, self-everything, yeah. I have had to muddle my way through it. And it has been really tough. And I've it's been a huge learning curve. And every time I get a little down, like yesterday actually I was a little down because I've been working on the audio book and it's just exhausting and much yeah. harder than I ever imagined. Um, but then I got that review from the Africa Hunting Gazette. And then I'm like, yes, you know, so... Um, I just know I got to keep up the fight and I just am trying really hard to get it into as many hands as possible. And I really want it to make its way to the non-hunting world and the anti-hunting world would be great. But, um, whoops. But, um, I know that in some ways I have to get it to the hunters first, that they have to help me get it there because non-hunters, it's hard to get them to pick up the book in the first place is the problem. Yeah. They have to recommend it to somebody, da 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 da, you know. But yeah. once they do, they totally. I've gotten some great reviews from non-hunters and even a few anti-hunters who, a couple of them, bought the book by mistake, thinking Cries of the Savannah was the opposite, you know. Mm -hmm. So, um, and yeah, and, and they just great reviews, totally changed their position on hunting, and so that is really encouraging and keeps me going. So, so like, like like you said, Sue, you you've you self-funded everything you've done yourself and you're doing an exceptional job on social media and stuff. What have been some of the challenges that you have found, especially trying to project the word out there as far as social media and all that sort of stuff? Have you had any backlash or anything? Oh, I've had death threats and, you know, oh, people no. are going to shoot me in the spine and paralyze me and <laughs> um, that kind of thing. But I'm just hoping nobody really wants to come to rural Idaho, you know, so yeah. I, and they, I know the person wasn't from America because they didn't talk in miles. They talked in kilometers. So I thought oh, I was pretty yeah. safe with that one. But, um, <laughs> yeah, it's hard. You know, it's hard because you do, you know, and in the beginning I really tried to, um, when I got those kind of attacks, I really tried to engage and try mm. to explain. But it was so time, it was so sapping of my energy that I had to just, um, just delete them, you know, and a few of them, like if, if I thought, if, if I think people are open to listening, I'll have a conversation, but when they're just too mean and radical and I know they're not going to 
open their minds to anything. So, so yeah, that, that part's been hard. And, of course, social media is hard. Just You can do a post every day, but it doesn't, doesn't mean it's seen. You know? So it's, um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a lot of work. Yeah, and I mean, that's that's why I think the book is such a great way because it often I, th- I feel like these people that we always argue against or try and defend ourselves against needs a little bit of time just to actually digest uh, some of the facts and information that we can put out there. Um, and that's why I think the book is such a great um, option for them because it gives them time to think after what they've just read, if, if that makes sense. But I wanted to dive into a little bit of the fact stuff that you came up with in the book. For instance, like I mentioned before, the land encroachment and all of that sort of stuff. What what made you dive into um, those different avenues? Because that that interests me. Is is that did you come across any of those fields or? Well, like I didn't. You know, my symptom opened my mind to all these things. And so I, once I decided I wanted to write this book, I realized, to be honest, I, I'm kind of a nobody. I mean, <laughs> I'm not a biologist. I'm not a scientist. I'm not even a hunter. And so yeah. here I am saying, hey, um, I want you to believe everything I say. So I knew that I had this evolution of thought. But I knew, and I put it, tried to put it in the book in this way that just made common sense. To me, that's the key about about hunting I think the hunting world sometimes tries to convey their stuff with facts too much and facts are important but stories I think connect so much better when you can relay it to people in a way they understand at least that's how I connect when you put somebody's face you know those three little boys in Tanzania a couple years ago that were eaten by a lion in front of their brother I mean when you put that in front of people I think that connects way better than certain facts but anyway in the book I just I knew that I needed to kind of back up my what I had learned so and I chose all non-hunting sources like I didn't I, I chose biologists some a lot some of them were even vegetarians non-hunting and that's who I kind of use their research and and it's kind of like one of those things you go down a rabbit hole once I started researching, I learned more and more and more. And the more I read, the more convinced that how important hunting is for, you know, African nation. Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's such a great way because, like, like I said, it's, it's just so many different interesting facts that came up out of it. And, and like I said, we've had us as hunters have had firsthand in developing these, you know, this this way to conserve things. But one of the questions that came up um, on social media that I read was the way you balanced the, the photography side and the hunting and you, and you did a direct comparison for that. That was incredible. Um, do you see any benefits going forward that somewhere we can meet in the middle and say, okay, well, because like, like you mentioned, Simba Camp was on the border of, of a reserve. And, but they didn't really um, balance each other out very well, if, if I'm making sense. Because the, the photography side, the animals, you weren't allowed to hunt that side. And in South Africa, we've got seasons. So specifically, I'm, I'm sure they're in Tanzania oh, okay. too, too. So try and merge everything as one so that all, not only the sim, you know, Simba camp can benefit, but so can the photography side of things all year round because Lillian would only be what she would work for only six months of the year. 
Well, you know, Lillian, since she's a game scout, she does work year-round because when she's okay. not at Simba camp, like, she just met those people that day that we did. She is hired by the government, a government employee. She is sent there to oversee the hunters, and she, by design, they don't have them knowing the outfitters because they don't want them to get too cushy, you know? Oh, yeah. So, um, so, yeah, she's employed all year round, but but the people in the Simba camp, they represented six different crop tribes. Um, most of them farmed in the off-season, so they would work like the six months, and then they would go home to their villages and farm. And, um, and then Magogo's village... They would rebuild camp every year because the camp had to be torn down every year to keep poachers from moving in. So it had to be torn down. Um, when we left, it was, you know, torn down, and then they had to rebuild it. And um, But as far as merging the two, I think it's important that people realize we need both. It's not like there's this big competition mm-hmm. between photo tourism and hunting tourism. It doesn't, shouldn't be a competition. They both protect different kinds of habitat. Um, photo tourism protects, you know, where there's lots of wildlife and these beautiful areas where tourists want to go. And, um, you know, they're more all condensed. Um, and hunting protects all the areas that tourists really don't want to go. People would not want to go where we went if they are just there to take photos because there's yeah. not the wildlife. Um, there's not the facilities. There's just, they're afraid of you. They don't, it's not like, um, I'm so afraid, because this is kind of one of my perceptions. We see too much National Geographic. So you think when you're um, driving out there, these animals are just going to be standing there as you drive by, and it's just, you know, a shooting gallery. Well, yeah, in those national parks, they're used to people. But in hunting concessions, they're not. They know they're being hunted. They run. I mean, you have to hide your vehicle. Then you have to get on the ground and stalk them or track them, one or the two. And... So that was a big misconception for me. But, yeah, I think both types are so important. And what we got to realize, I don't know if you've seen some of those videos circulating lately of touristing places where literally 30 or 40 vehicles dive in on a lion or a leopard eating its Mm. kill. I mean, it's ridiculous. Mm. So in some ways that does need to be managed where animals can do their thing without this kind of molestation. But, um but animals leave such a smaller footprint on the land, you know? Yeah. They don't move yeah. from place to place. They don't need new sheets every night. You know, it's they don't have swimming pools. It's just different. Yeah. Um, so where, where did you go for your next trip to Africa? Were you in Namibia? We went to Namibia second, and then we went to Mozambique last year. And were there any... <laughs> differences in the way people approached conservation over there that you saw from Masimba, your first experience? Yeah, they were, they were both totally unique experiences. I mean, um, Namibia, of course, has the game farms and stuff that we did. So I got to see that aspect of it and learn more about that aspect of it. But we were also on Waterberg Plateau, which is a national park. And you're, they, um, our concession had they hunt Cape Buffalo there. So yeah. that's where we're at. So I got exposure to both there. Um, and then Mozambique was, was the most that I was ever like, um, around the peak, the more people like, uh, to camp, we had 21 people there. And those were my, what I got to know. In Mozambique, we would literally, cause Rick was hunting crocodile. We would literally have, Hundreds of people waiting for us on shore when we got back to when we got back to the river every night, and 
those kids just, oh my gosh, they just warmed my heart. And it puts things in a different perspective even, because I didn't get to see kids really on the first two. And, um, you know, I, I just fell in love with them. Rick wasn't even planning on taking um, a hippo, but he ended up taking a management hippo just so we had something to give to them, um, you know, for them waiting for every night. You know, I couldn't wait for well, I couldn't wait to get off that darn Zambezi River anyway. That thing was terrifying. <laughs> 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 but, <laughs> I, I had no idea what I signed up for when I said I'd go hunting with Rick on yeah. a crocodile hunt. But um, I thought we'd be sitting along a little shore, you know, with, anyway. But um, yeah. that Zambezi River is terrifying. But it was worth it every day to see those smiling faces. And they'd never seen themselves in phones. So I'd take pictures and show them. And they'd laugh and giggle. But um, what I was really struck home for me in Mozambique most was as soon as we left the hunting concessions, there was no wildlife. It was cornfields and rice fields and people mm. everywhere. It was just it was mesmerizing in the sense of just, I'm mesmerized by the way women can carry all that stuff on their heads and men. I can, I'm mesmerized by all that. But it was such a stark distance. As soon as we went into a hunting concession, the forests were beautiful and there was wildlife. And it, it, as soon as you left that, it, it, it wasn't. So that was pretty um, eye-opening. So, I want to... So, so like you mentioned, and, and I mean, there's a huge Chinese influence in the in the Mozambique side of things. But from uh, it's it's beautiful to see that you get emotional about seeing people and and the people you've met and all that sort of stuff. People don't understand that, um, like you've mentioned, the rice fields and stuff. Obviously, is creating a huge amount of jobs, but there's there's not there's not that balance between human living and animals whereas hunting creates that and it's interesting for me that 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 you've you've put a value on the human life than you have with you know together with the animals is that is that just a different perspective you've always had well i've i've always loved people so for me to connect with people is really important. You know, I, I, I love that. I love, I love that connection that you can get. Um, you know, as far as like Mozambique and the hunting thing, that hunting concession that we were in there, they, um, the guy that owned it, it the hunting concession actually leased it out, but the guy that had it run a sustainable forest there and he had replanted everything and made it that, Oh, he's been there like 30 years, but he employed like 120 people. Because they, they do sustainable logging, sustainable harvest. but um, And where we were at, we didn't see the big-scale rice farming that you're talking about. It was all that we saw was just the little rice okay. from the local people. It was a hut, a little rice, a hut, a little corn, a hut. I mean, it was just all the that kind of thing. But, yeah, there was no, um, you know, people in Africa, as you know, heat by wood. So... They have to keep chopping down forests to produce wood to eat their meals. And so there wasn't a lot of, once you got away from that, you know, um, there wasn't a lot there. So it was with, with eye opening. With, with the rice fields and, and the crop fields and that being so in such close proximity, did you come into any interactions or did people mention anything about 
them poaching elephants and stuff like that because they would have had an influence on their fields or not so much? I don't think where we were at in Mozambique, right where we were at near the yeah. Zambezi River, I don't think they had to worry about elephants right there. Um, Cause you remember, I think a lot of the elephants were pretty much wiped out during the wars yeah. Um, yeah. there. Now they're starting to come back in some of the national parks and some of the protected areas, but I don't think where we were at where the, for the people, um, that area had much to do with with elephants. Worry about that, but um, I know that's a big concern in other areas. I mean, look at Botswana, for instance. I mean, yeah, yeah, geez. yeah. There's a huge problem there: overpopulation of elephants. Who would have thought? But yeah, it's just another great conservation story, but it needs to be managed now. Pretty, pretty and that's soon. that's another thing I think people need to know is. <laughs> Africa is huge. It's three, yeah. I think it's three times the size of America. Mm-hmm. So you can't use a one size fits all solution. Yeah. You can't say elephants are endangered. Sure, they might be in one little, one area of, of Africa, mm-hmm. but then other huge areas are way overpopulated. Yeah. So you've got to break it down. You can't just make these blanket policies. Yeah. And then the interesting thing for me as well is, I mean, I, I can't remember the exact figure, but I'm sure it's more than 150 animal species that the whole of Africa has got. So to manage each and every single species is so, so difficult in such trying times. But to, um, with with that being said, uh, I'm sure you're going to have another adventure to Africa. Like you said, it's in your blood. Is there any plan of a second book or anything like that? What what, what would your footprint be next for conservation and, and hunting awareness? I think my next plan, after I get this audio book done, which we're getting close, um, I hired a girl from Namibia to help me with the fine-tuning of the editing and everything. Okay. So, But anyway... Uh, and oh, and so you know, just this is kind of cool, but there's going to be animal sounds in it. So there's going to be the literal cries of the savannah in the audiobook. Oh, so I'm excited about awesome. that. And Lillian is also going to do a guest, like she's going to speak a part at the end, narrate a part. So it'll be fun for people to hear Lillian and yeah. for them to hear what the lions grunting and the hippos sound like. So I'm excited about that. But anyway, um, yeah, Namibia will probably be the next book because um, I'll talk about that buffalo hunt. And of course, that will give me the opportunity to weave in more about what I learned about game farms, you know, cause okay. I just kind of touched on them in that book in, in cries of the Savannah. And I'm, I don't want to get too heavy cause I don't want to ever like make the book boring. I, I just like yeah. to weave in enough that people learn and then continue on with the adventure. So, but that's what I'm planning for Namibia, I'll, the Buffalo hunt. And then I'll weave in, you know, what I learned about Namibia and about conservation yeah. in Namibia. Yeah. And well, then, cr- then, if the things go good, I'll probably do one on Mozambique as well, and learn, you know, talk about the crop hunt and what I learned there. They they won't be as big though. These books are going to be smaller than my first one. <laughs> now that I know what I'm doing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but again, it just it just creates such a great conversation piece, and, and like I said, for for the newer generation of hunters that have been that have inherited these um, bad habits. Um, points of views from our older generation because back then that's that that was conservation but things have changed now and you've highlighted that so well but sue it's been an, an absolute pleasure um i would like you to mention what you guys have got in plan i know you said you got the audio book where can people get your book is your book released in south africa yet or not yet not yet i'm still working on that um i did get an offer from one of the publishing companies saying they would publish it but 
then I got so distracted with this audiobook because literally, I've literally been in my closet for a month because that's my my walking closet is my recording studio. <laughs> <laughs> and so when I say come, I I come out of the closet. I really mean it. I come out of the closet. <laughs> but um, and it's way harder. Even your own book, it's way harder to narrate than you think. But anyway, um, yeah. So I'm still working on getting it in South Africa, available to print copy, and I will let you know when that happens. And because um, I, I don't know much about that, so I have to research and figure out what the best way is to do that. Um, and then I am on Instagram under SueTidwell.Writer. I'm on Facebook under SueTidwell.Writer. I'm also on TikTok, but, you know, that's, you know, yeah, that's, that's a, oh, here and there. That's but, <laughs> that's a that's a monster with yeah. its own but um anyway but i do like creating the videos there so yeah. they're a great place to create videos and i can share them other places and um and my audiobook hopefully will be ready in a month or so you know i gotta download it to um amazon and then get it approved and all that but then that'll be available as well also you can go to my website which is suetidwell.com and you can get signed copies of the book and um, also, I'm going to try to sell the audiobook from there too. I think if I can, I haven't figured that out yet. But okay, so, so thank you once again. Thank you so much. I, I didn't want to flood you with all my questions because I would love to have you back on the podcast. You just have such a unique way of seeing things, and I, I really love chatting to you. But um, it's it's really it's been an absolute honor, and I can't thank you enough for doing this. And um, yeah, good luck with everything and. Hopefully we see that audio book out soon. Hopefully. So thanks so much, Dylan, for having me on. And it's great to talk to you again. I'm sorry I didn't see you in yeah. person this year at SCI. Yeah. Um, maybe next year, hopefully. But Most yeah, thanks. Good. And I'm, I'm happy to come on anytime. I never get tired of talking about Africa. So, you know, anytime. Well, awesome, Sue. Thank you so much. And um, yeah, enjoy the rest of your day. Okay, you, you as well. Awesome. Thanks, Sue. Cheers. <laughs> The Journal is brought to you by Treason. Don't just blend, become. Splitting Image Taxidermy. Worth remembering. Maxis Tires. Covering pHs over any terrain. Magnum Archery. Scullies. The little things are what makes life wonderful. Vanandi Blends. Changing the game. FFS Outdoor. Versatile gear for any situation. PH Toolbox helping you make your own adventure.